Hi, my name is Caitlin and welcome to the Gospel House. Our mission here at the Gospel House is to show the world that the gospel of Jesus Christ is enough, that in the gospel we can find all of our deepest needs met as the entire church responds to and applies implications of the gospel. We would love to show it with you. Check out our website, www.thegospel.house, where you can learn more about us, find out how to connect with us, ask questions, see when and where our next meeting is, and give to help advance this gospel message of Jesus Christ. All right. Well, good morning, everyone. Happy New Year. Yay. Yes, yes. So to kick off this new year, uh, we are actually going to be in the book of James. So if you have your Bibles with you, uh, you can flip those open to the book of James. Uh, if you have your Bible on your phone, you can scroll that open to the book of James. Uh, and if you have neither of those options, it is conveniently going to be up on the screen for you, so you can follow along that way. We got you covered, all bases, every way. Uh, I think that the book of James is such an important book for the current condition of our church culture today. Uh, I love this verse uh, from James. It actually comes from James 2.19. It's the inspiration for the title of the sermon series. The title of the sermon series is, So You Say You Believe. And that's a pretty good encapsulation of the entire book of James. But James 2.19 is a very powerful verse. It says this, You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. Such a powerful verse, but also a sobering reminder if we're paying attention. There are a lot of Christians today who say they believe in God. We put pretty little crosses around our necks, we adorn our houses with Hobby Lobby signs, but we've got a lifestyle that says everything but we believe in God. We've got to remember, as James reminds us, demons believe in God too, right? Demons believe in God a lot more than some of us because they've seen him, right? They've still got his rear end or his, his footprint in their rear end from when he gave them the boot out of heaven, right? They know that God is real. They know he exists. They've seen his power at work. But even though they believe in him, even though the mere thought of our God makes these demons shudder, they still have no interest in doing anything that God says. They would rather do things their way. Does that sound familiar? Unfortunately, it sounds a lot like what most of us do, right? If we're being honest. This is what we've been preaching for a long time, probably since day one, from the beginning of the Gospel House Church. There's two ways to do things, right? There's God's way, and there's man's way. And you can say you believe in God all you want, but at the end of the day, are you going to do things God's way, or are you going to continue doing things your way? Because as long as you do things your way, you're still showing that you don't actually believe in God. We're just like the demons. We're just as bad because we'd rather do things our way than the perfect way that God has laid out. So that's what the book of James is all about. Super cheery, right? 
Everybody's sitting here thinking, oh boy, I might take the next three weeks off. Good, take the next three weeks off, because it's actually five weeks in January, so I'll get you on the last one. Boom. Yes, but this is what James is all about. He's all through the book of James, every single chapter, and we're going to walk through this chapter by chapter, but every single chapter says, you say you believe in God, then do what he says. You say you believe in God, then act like it. See, we've gotten away from this in our church culture today. You know, we, the church, typically culture does this. Culture swings on a pendulum, for those of you who don't know it. Sociologists out there, you can study this. But typically when the pendulum swings too far one way, it balances itself by swinging further or as far the other way. And so when you study church culture, we have gone through a period where legalism was a very, very dangerous thing the church walked through. And so that pendulum swung really far toward the legalism side of things. The problem we have now is that it has now swung back. And unfortunately, so legalism is a half-truth, right? Legalism says that I earn the favor of God by doing the right stuff. That's what legalism says. It's a half-truth. The problem is we've balanced that half-truth with another half-truth. Here's the problem, y'all. Half-truths are lies. Do you know that? You can gloss it up and make it pretty and put the bow on it all you want. A half-truth is a lie. And so when you balance a lie with another lie, it's not like math. You know, when you multiply by negatives, two negatives make a positive, right? Is that right? I think that's right. I was an English teacher, so, you know, math stuff. But it, that's not how it works. You don't add two negatives together and get a, a positive. Unfortunately, in the Christian walk, we think that. We think it's this tightrope balancing act. And if I start teetering this way, okay, I need grace, grace, grace. But the problem is the church has offered this grace that's not gospel grace. It's cheap grace. It makes the death of this, our Savior cheap. What he did, cheap. Because even though Jesus Christ bought me with a price, I can still go do whatever I want. And he'll forgive me. That's cheap grace. And that's what our current church culture has used to balance this out. We've tried to balance legalism with this cheap grace. So you say you believe. Then you know it's not about balance. It's about truth. And that's truth with a capital T. We can't just sit in these seats and talk about it. We have to do what the Bible says. We have to be doers of the word. And this is a good summary of James chapter 1. So we're going to look at James chapter 1 today, and this is one call that James is going to give to us, to be doers of the word, not just hearers. That's very interesting. Um, just a little background on the book of James. Most scholars actually believe that James was the first letter written to all of the churches. So of all the letters of Paul, all the letters of Peter, John, all those letters... They believe that James was the first. Uh, it's, it's written, the primary target of James is to a, a Jewish audience. So it's believed that this happened before there was a major acceptance of the gospel among Gentiles. That the church, the Christian church, the early Christian church was still primarily Jews. 
and that, you know, there's this big council that happens. It's called the Jerusalem Council. That's where they all meet together. You can read about it in Acts 5. But that's where they get together and they decide, hey, what do Gentiles need to do to be a part of the faith? They believe that the book of James was written before that because of the audience that it's written to. Um, and we can actually see that if you look at James 1, so here's where we start the book of James. James 1 says, it starts off by James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. Uh, it is widely accepted that the author of the book of James was James. <laughs> Imagine that, right? But there were a lot of James, Jameses, James to choose from. So it's widely accepted that this James is James, the half-brother of Jesus Christ. Uh, this is not as widely accepted in the Catholic Church. Uh, the Catholic Church believes that Mary stayed a virgin for all of her life and that Jesus didn't have any brothers or sisters. Uh, there are passages in the Gospel that contradict that, though the Catholic Church has their reasoning to explain those things away. Believe what you want to believe. I don't think it's going to keep you out of heaven. But uh, personally, from my study and from what I've looked at, I do believe that this James is the half-brother of Jesus Christ. Uh, it's super interesting because James has a very interesting background. If you read through the scriptures, you'll see in Matthew 13, 55, and also in John 7, 2 through 5, you'll see James and his brothers questioning Jesus' ministry. So James did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah at first. In fact, all of Jesus' family was kind of like, Jesus, what are you doing? This is crazy stuff. And then there's one point, that passage in John, where James actually comes to Jesus and says, hey, Jesus, look, if you want to be one of these celebrity pastors, they were rabbis back then, but if you want to be one of these celebrity rabbis, you got to start doing these things in public. You can't be doing these things in these small little dinky dunk towns and all this. Like, you got to do things man's way, Jesus. Like, you got to put out posters and, you know, really push. So it really shows us, if anything, you know, we've talked about this a lot, but this theme always comes up in the Bible. These, these like big heroes of the faith, you know, Peter, James, John, all these people, they always make themselves look like idiots, right? That Christianity is one of the unique things where the founders of the religion make themselves look like complete fools. Because they're all, like what we all know, the disciples, they're not the founders, right? The entire book of the Bible, all the heroes, Moses, David, all these flawed individuals who look like fools, like it's a PR nightmare, right? If you're starting a company and your CEO's out there making himself look like an idiot in front of everybody, like that's, that's a nightmare. But that's what Christianity does because Christianity makes no bones about it. We are flawed beings. He is not. And so we don't point to ourselves, right? So James was a flawed being, but he came around. And after the resurrection, he is listed in the book of Acts as one of the first disciples that Jesus appeared to. He was there. Uh, James held a high position among the disciples. Uh, most think that he was the lead elder uh, in the church in Judea. And so, you know, we see Paul in a lot of his letters say that, you know, he went to James. Peter says that he went to James. So, so James became a very prominent figure in the early church. What's very interesting, uh, I always find this kind of interesting, uh, James ended up being a martyr for the faith. We have uh, accounts outside of the Bible from historians that show us these things. But the Jewish historian Josephus 
and uh, Hegesephos, uh, they both confirmed that James was martyred around 62 AD, which would have been very close to after he had written this letter. Uh, but what happened was he was called into this council with all of these Pharisees, and they demanded that he publicly denounce the name of Jesus Christ. And so in front of all of these Pharisees and Sadducees, James stood up and gave his declaration and said to them, i got to find my notes here, he said to them, uh, Jesus Christ is the Son of God and the judge of the world. And upon hearing that, they stoned him, and then they say one merciful onlooker actually came and clubbed him over the head to kill him immediately. Uh, and he died, uh, and they say while he died, he prayed the same prayer Jesus prayed on the cross. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. Isn't that incredible? Absolutely incredible faith. Uh, so what's interesting about this letter of James is that when you look at the chron chrono chronology of both of, of, of the, all of these letters, and it's interesting because this Bible in a year plan that we're doing this year as the Gospel House, if you're interested, see me after church or put your name out there and we'll get you signed up for that. But we're doing a chronological study through the Bible. And, and what that means is you read the Bible as it historically happened. And so it's kind of weird because you'll be in Genesis and we'll, we'll have a couple days in Genesis, and then Job's in there. And I think that's a shock for a lot of us who have never done that, because we don't realize Job happened that early in the timeline of human history. Uh, but it's really interesting as well when you get into the book of Acts, because in this, they actually put the letters in the book of Acts where they would have been sent to the church. And so you'll see, if you go through this, that James comes first, and then right after James, we have the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, and then right after that, we have the book of Galatians. What's interesting about this is, this is, sorry, Bible nerd here, but everybody's like, this is an interesting dude, I'm falling asleep. But, but what, what's interesting here is that James and Galatians are probably two of the most oft- referred to Bible books that people go to to say, look, the Bible contradicts itself all over the place. These two things, you cannot have Galatians and James in the same religion because they both say two totally opposite things. Because in Galatians, Paul is very much grace, 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 grace. You are saved by grace. That is the only thing that saves you. And then in James, it's faith by works. Faith by works. You know, you show that you have faith by the works that you do. That's how you do it. And so these things, when we look at them, it's like, oh, 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 those are polar opposites. But we as Christians know God's word is perfect, and it does not contradict itself. So how do we reconcile that difference? And the answer really is, these are two pastors, two elders, two overseers who are writing to do two different church bodies. I promise you, if I am pastoring a church in New York City, I am preaching completely different messages than I am pastoring a church in Northwest Ohio. Because what a shepherd should be doing, and, and ladies and gentlemen, if this isn't your church home, if you're just visiting, if you're tuning in online, whatever it is, what your pastor should be doing is shepherding the flock. If you are in a church where your pastor is only telling you the stuff that you want to hear, that is a deadly place to be. A deadly place to be, y'all. And that's, it's not just from the pastor. I've said this before, but if, when I read my Bible, if I don't find the Holy Spirit contradicting something I'm doing, correcting me on something, rebuking me on something, more than a couple of days, I start to get a little worried. Like, ooh, am I paying attention here, Lord? Because I'm not perfect. My walk needs to be made perfect. 
And so I expect my shepherd, Jesus Christ, to be correcting me on things. And so that's what our goal here is to do. We want to make each other look more like Jesus. So that's what my pastoring, my preaching is meant to do, to make us look more like Jesus. The good news is, if I'm correcting you, the Holy Spirit has already corrected me on it, right? So if it hurts, just trust me, it hurt me first. All right, that's how it works here. But it's interesting. These books don't contradict each other. They're both showing different sides of the same coin. Paul is, is saying in Galatians, you've got to have grace because it is all a free gift of God. Paul says, walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desires of your flesh, right? That's what Paul's all about, walk by the Spirit. But guess what? If you walk by the Spirit, he will never lead you to do anything to break the commandments, because the commandments, it's not a list of rules. We've broken this down. Legalism makes the commandments a list of rules. But the commandments are really more of a, a, an explanation of what life should look like. And so when James says all of these things that we think, ooh, ugh, rules, I don't like rules, James is saying when you walk in the Spirit, this is what it should look like. And so th that's the, we, we make it this big difference, but it's two of the same thing. Different ways to get there, different explanations for different churches because different churches swing different ways and have different problems. So there's differences, but it's both the same thing. And so we don't want to act like you know, the Bible's contradicting itself, but we also don't want to run away from it because we've got to know how to explain these things because, guys, there are people who look to shoot holes in the Bible all the time. You know that. You've talked to those people. Christian, you need to know how to defend your faith. You need to know how to explain to somebody. The book of James and the book of Galatians, they don't contradict one another. It's, it's two of the same thing. They're just explaining it different ways. And so you've got to know how to do this. So, at the baseline of all of these things, both Paul and James are telling us how we live out the gospel. They're both showing us this is what the gospel in action looks like in the lives of a believer. So, for this sermon series, let's find the gospel in the book of James. And the way we're going to do it today, we got three points. In order to be doers of the word, James lays it out like this. First, there's a test. Thankfully, God gives us the answer key to that test. Isn't that wonderful? Didn't you love that in school when you accidentally found the answer key? To the teacher's test accidentally i always love that not that i ever cheated and then finally there is the submission of the test because here's the thing and i think this is where a lot of us get hung up on i love there's english nerd double entendre you guys know what a double entendre is yes it's when you say something but it's got two different meanings right i love this the submission because we as christians are called to submit to the holy spirit right but there's also the submission because when you finish a test, what do you do? you got to turn it in, right? And I feel like that's our biggest problem as Christians. We've got this test. We've got all the answers to the test. But we never turn the test in. We never submit and fully surrender. And so we've got to surrender and turn our test in. So here we go. First, the test. So you say you believe in God. Good. 
then you've got to pass the test. And what is the test for a disciple of Jesus Christ? It's actually the same thing as it is for anybody on this earth. And James hits on it right away, verses 2 through 4. He says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. What is the test? And the test is this life. And not just life, but the promise that this life here on this earth is going to come with struggle, with trials, with tribulations. It's almost like we should do an entire sermon series about how this life were promised trouble. Oh, wait, we did, right? If you want to listen to sermon series ago, you can check that out. Anyone could pass the test of life if life were easy, right? If we never struggled, if we never went through trials, if there were never hardship, anybody can pass that, right? But that's not helping you to grow. Unfortunately, I would love to tell you that you know, all of the times of my greatest growth were mountaintop experiences where God was like, Jeremy, come cuddle me. Now I'm going to tell you some wonderful things to do while I pet your hair, and then you're just going to go do them, right? That's never how it works for me, because primarily because my head is too thick. My skull is just thick, and God nicely tells me, and I don't do it, and so then he nicely tells me, and I don't do it, and then he has to start, <laughs> right? But it's when those trials come, and, and look, y'all, we know this, like, right? Microsoft does the whole thing with their thing. They don't hire anybody who hasn't failed with at least a million-dollar program or I don't know what it is some big company does that but we know this in the real world failure produces results right it's when we fail that we learn lessons that project us forward but yet we come to Christianity and pretend that it's supposed to be sunshine and rainbows well I'm just going to be made by Jesus by silky pillows and flowers that's not how it works Iron doesn't sharpen iron with pillows, right? Proverbs doesn't say that. Pillows sharpen iron. That's not what it says. You guys know the process of sharpening iron? It's not a nice process for the iron, right? There is heat and hammers and friction and force. Those aren't things that we like to come up against in our daily walk, right? I, I, I get really annoyed with this because it seems like such a prevalent message in the church today. And I cannot tell you, I have been told by multiple pastors of churches, well, if, if everybody sees you moping around and being you know, dejected and crushed and having a terrible time, they're never going to want to become a Christian. S number one, since when is that my job? to worry about making other people want to become a Christian. But number two, like, do, do you, did you read the gospel of Jesus Christ? Have you seen his life and what he had to endure? I, I'm not real sure that him saying, anyone who wants to follow after me must pick up their cross and follow me, like the cross is a pretty brutal way to die. I don't know that that's really a great PR. We're going to get thousands of people flocking to come and do this thing. 
The book of Isaiah tells us, it prophesies that Jesus was to be a man of sorrows and familiar with grief. There's actually only one part in the Gospels that I know of where it actually shows us Jesus being filled with joy, of him being overjoyed. And it's when his disciples come back and had just gotten done healing a bunch of people and casting out demons, and he says, don't rejoice in this, but rejoice that your names are written in the book of life. And then it tells us that Jesus just like, bubbled up with this explosion of joy. But the fact of the matter is, for the Christian, this life is not supposed to be easy. And I'm really tired of the church teaching that it is. You know, we've got these churches who they, they make fun of the prosperity gospel. They say, well, our church isn't prosperity gospel. But then they teach that coming to church should be fun and games, and we should all be smiling and having wonderful times. Guys, that's not Christianity. And when James says here, consider it all joy, joy and happiness are not the same. They are two completely different things. You can be full of joy and weeping. You can be filled with joy, an unending joy that can never be taken away and completely broken in the midst of your sorrow, in the midst of your valley, you can still have joy. And that's what the disciples had. A joy that they could have joy in the middle of persecution. Guys, I don't buy for one second that Paul's sitting there getting lashed 39 times. <laughs> this is grand, y'all. Are you kidding me? But yet, churches preach this. And then he was in prison and singing hymns and they were probably waving their glory flags and tambourines and I don't buy it. Jesus Christ was a man of sorrows, but he had a joy that could never be taken away because Jesus knew where his home was and it wasn't here. Christians... Mm, James is going to hit hard. But we got to stop pretending that Jesus hit any less hard. It's really interesting. James goes really closely hand-in-hand hand with the Beatitudes of Jesus. But, and so I would really suggest to you all, as we're going through this sermon series, read the Beatitudes of Jesus. And can I make a personal plug? Don't read Matthew. Matthew 5 is probably the most common Beatitudes. We like that because it gives us wiggle room. It makes some things that are black and white in Luke pretty gray. But read Luke, because it's hard. Because Luke says, blessed are the poor. It doesn't say blessed are the poor in spirit, because the blessed, blessed and the poor in spirit, I can say, okay, well, I, then I can still have my wealth and, oh, yeah. Luke just cuts straight to the point. Blessed are the poor, for they will receive the kingdom of God. Jesus shoots straight in Luke's account. If you receive your comforts here on this earth, you've received your payment. That contradicts a lot, doesn't it? But if you suffer on this earth, then you will receive your payment in his kingdom. Can I tell y'all who are suffering right now? This is not your home. Your home is with Him. And if we are too comfortable here, the temptation is that we start 
to gather and pretend that this is our home, right? And we start storing up wealth for this world. And that is directly against a command that Jesus gives us. Store up your wealth for the next world. This is the test. And those who are truly blessed, if you're walking in this lie that says that life is going to be easy, God will wreck your world. I know that that contradicts everything that we've ever learned in church. Because God doesn't work like that. He only blesses. And you're the head and not the tail. And you're the, I know, I've read them too. I know what it says. But those who are truly blessed, God will wreck your world until you give it all to him. Because guess what? It, I mean, I, I know it's kind of the cheesy saying, but, but you don't know that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. And blessing in this world is Jesus taking everything away until you know that he is all you have. That's, it's not popular, y'all, but following Jesus is not supposed to be popular. How often is the truth popular, right? Thankfully, that's a heavy test, right? Oh, we can all just breathe a little, shake it out, right? We're okay. Because thankfully, God gives us the answers. This is what is so crazy about Christianity that we just cannot seem to grasp. We look at the law in the Old Testament, and we see it as a set of rules that we've got to obey, right? But the thing is, God has given us the law as a blessing. The law is good, and it's supposed to be good. Yet we look at it, even as New Testament Christians, we look at it as Old Testament God. He's the wet blanket, right? He just goes around throwing wet blankets on all our parties. You can't have fun. You can't do fun things. You've got this law to live up to. So he makes all of these rules that prohibit fun, that make life nothing more than a chore. And yes, that is what the law is if you are following it the wrong way. If you are following the law in order to twist God's arm to give you stuff you want, right? Because that's what legalism really is. Legalism says, if I obey, then God owes me. And that's why people who are legalistic who start to suffer, they really struggle. Because they say, God, I have been a good person. I have done all the right things. I've obeyed the commandments. I've done what I'm supposed to do. You aren't holding up your end of the deal. anyone? Come on now. I can't be the only one who said that to God, right? That's where we get. God, I'm doing it right. It's all these knuckleheads over here who aren't. Why don't you go after them for a little while and give me some reprieve? But I can't handle another one. That's legalism. Because legalism says, I obey, Therefore, I am accepted. Right? But that's not the gospel. The gospel says, I am accepted. Before I ever did anything, before I ever even took a step into the kingdom, 
God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5.8, it's the greatest single gospel verse in the Bible. If you need one verse that tells you the gospel, that's it. Before I even took a step into the kingdom of God, I was accepted. And because I am accepted, I obey. It's that love motivation. We love because he first loved us. And when I love, when I see how much Jesus loved me and gave for me, and I love, then the commandments, it's not a burden anymore. And that's how you tell the difference between somebody walking Christianity in legalism and somebody walking Christianity in grace or in the Spirit. Because they both look exactly the same. They're both obeying the commandments. They're both doing the right things. But only the Christian who truly understands the gospel can do the right things with joy. Can do the right things willingly, wanting to do the right things. And that's the difference. People who look at the law begrudgingly, oh, man, I can't murder. Oh, I really wish I could do that right now, right? Maybe not that bad, but the other ones, right? But that's the difference. It's our joy to do God's will when we walk in the gospel. And that is the answer. Because it's not just that God has given us the answers to write in the line. God has given us access. Us who are in the kingdom, we talked about this, this a couple weeks ago, but us who are in the kingdom of God, we have the Holy Spirit. If you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, the Holy Spirit is already inside of you working. And if you have the Spirit... You have access to God himself, the power of God himself, right? So it's not just the answers to write on the line. It's that God's holding the pen, right? He's given you the power to do it. But that power will not share glory. Our problem is when we try to step in and take glory, right? Or I try to step in and say, hold on a second, God. I know how to do this. I, was, I know how to play guitar. I know the chords. I can do this. I don't need you. And y'all, I, I don't see in Scripture where that's what God wants. Everywhere I look, I see God wanting complete control. Surrender. Surrender. Give it all to me. And He will fill out the test for you. We see this in the book of James. He gives us four different sections. I'll go through them quickly. Don't worry, they're not four separate main points to the sermon. Don't have to swallow hard or anything. But he, gives us, he shows us the source of wisdom. God shows us the upside-down kingdom, shows us the upside-down blessing, and then he shows us the exercise of God's will. So first, the source of wisdom. James tells us, but if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways." If we are going to pass God's test, stop me if this sounds familiar, we cannot pass God's test 
man's way. Right? There's that sneaky, sneaky little Bible passage that everybody says is their favorite, but if you actually think about what it's saying, right? Proverbs 3, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not onto your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths, right? And we really, really love that, and we put it up on our walls. I, that's a Craig Rochelle thing I really like. I don't like the leadership stuff, but I do like, he says with core values, as soon as you put your, your company's core values on the wall, nobody does them anymore, right? Because they're on the wall. I feel the same way, if you couldn't tell, about Hobby Lobby. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I love Hobby Lobby. The business is fine. But y'all, stop putting scripture verses on your wall if you're not going to do it, right? Trust in the Lord with all your heart, okay? And lean not on your own understanding. Stop trying to pass God's test man's way. It, look, y'all, I'm preaching to myself today. I've had enough. Jeremy, get your head on straight and figure this stuff out. Look, I, we're, I'm spoiling it for you, but James talks about this later. He sa James says, teachers, be careful. Don't be, don't be quick to become a teacher because teachers will be judged more harshly than everyone else. Y'all, that's on me. And I'm vowing in 2023 to be better. Because I have stood up here too long and preached messages and then not given God complete control. And I've got to stop. It's got to be every area of my life. He's got to have everything. And this is it. I've got to stop trying to pass God's test Jeremy's way. Because I have done it Jeremy's way and I fail every time. It's a mess. He's given me access to the mind of Christ. Who can know the mind of Christ? Nobody but God himself. I really wish I had God himself living inside of me so that he could tell, oh wait. <laughs> right? But, but it's like we forget, don't we? We forget the access that we have to the Holy Spirit. That he's given us unlimited access to this mind of Christ that he has already supplied it. And all we've got to do is give up. Don't be double-minded. I've heard people make ridiculous sermons out of this don't be double-minded part here. But look, what's, what's being double-minded? I've got the mind of Christ and I've got Jeremy's mind. Don't be double-minded. Throw the junky one away. And you all can pick for me. Which would you rather have? Would you rather me preach from the mind of Christ or you want to hear what Jeremy has to say? Nobody wants to hear what Jeremy has to say, right? We have access to the mind of Christ. That is the source of wisdom. We've got to use it. James then goes on to show us the upside-down kingdom. And the only way you can understand this is with the mind of Christ. Y'all, if you try to understand the kingdom of God... With, with man's mind, it is, it's going to look foolish every time. That's what keeps people from entering the kingdom because they don't come at it with the mind of Christ. But look at this. This is, this is going to sound weird. I'm going to tell you right off the bat. It's going to sound like James screwed up. This has to be a mistranslation. James couldn't have meant. But the brother of humble circumstances, that means poor, 
the one who has no money, no possessions, nothing, no friends. The brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position. And the rich man is to glory in his humiliation. Because like flowering grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass and its flowers falls off and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. I would venture to say that the reason most American Christian churches struggle with the real gospel here and when you read the Beatitudes of Jesus, when Jesus says, blessed are the and he goes through this list. Y'all, let's be real. That's not the blessing we hear taught, right? When Jesus says, blessed are the poor, blessed are the meek, blessed are the humble, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness. Like When we go through that list, it's like, whoa, 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 Jesus, this isn't blessing. <laughs> I think you missed the blessing 101 class that tells what blessings are. The reason we miss all of this stuff is because we are far too focused on this is our home. Right? We're coming at this with man's mind. And God takes the kingdom and completely flips it. What did we talk about all last sermon series? Right? Jesus Christ came, and he came in a way that no one expected. He came in a way that was completely opposite of what a worldly, powerful king and leader is supposed to be. Because God takes man's ways and he flips them upside down. Jesus Christ himself, it's red letters, y'all. Jesus himself says, if you want to be first in the kingdom of heaven, you have to be last here. And yet we have Christians clawing and fighting and biting and scratching for positions of power here on this earth. Look, you got to do what God's called you to do, right? And so if God's called you to be president of the United States, then go be president of the United States. That's not what he's telling me to do, though. I want to be last because I want to be first in his kingdom. I want to serve because when I get to his kingdom, I want to find my real home. I've, I've lived on this earth. I heard a pastor say once, I can't remember who it was now, but you know, he's, he says, if, if, you, don't, if you, you don't give Jesus control of your life, this life is as good as it gets. But if you give Jesus control, if you make him your Lord and your Savior, then this world is as bad as it gets. Y'all, I don't want this to be as good as it gets, right? But I would be thrilled if this is as bad as it ever gets, right? But we've got to know our position. We've got to know where we have to be. Struggle now, receive greater glory in his kingdom. Comfort now. And you've received your blessing. That's Jesus' teaching. That's what James is teaching. Those of us who are struggling now, we're in the high position. 
That's what James is saying here. This is the upside-down kingdom. And we don't like it when we're trying to live man's way. The church today has got the fence straddled, and we are trying really hard to stay in both camps because, doggone it, I like being comfortable in church. Doggone it, I don't want to change, God. I've got my life knocked out. I've got a rut that I walk in every day. You can actually see the path for, from my routines that I do because I do them so, and I'm comfortable in it. I don't want to change. But God says, this is his promise. Suffer now, be rewarded in heaven. Comfort now, you've received your reward. There's a decision that we have to be made, that we have to make, and we can only make that with the mind of Christ. Because there's also an upside-down blessing. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Again, nobody's going to call this a blessing on this earth, right? Now, perseverance is a good quality. We like that in people, but nobody wants to suffer. Nobody wants to be in a position in which we have to persevere, right? But this is the blessing. Persevere now and God will give you the crown of life. Struggle now. And God will give you the crown of life, promised to those who love Jesus. It's not persevering the world's way. Because the world, like we said with Microsoft, right? The people who fail, you fail so that you can learn, right? A lot of people are good with persevering as long as I get double back. Right? Because that's what the Bible teaches. I've read Job. I know. That's not the teaching, though. That's not biblical perseverance. Biblical perseverance is persevere so you look more like Jesus. And then finally, we see the exercise of God's will. It says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived it, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. I love the, the difference that James gives us here. Because it really gives me a good inside peek into the chest cavity of Jeremy Allen Metzger. Because look, y'all, how easy is it to give in to temptation? They wouldn't call it temptation if it weren't tempting, right? I mean, the very word is kind of like leading into very easy, Pastor, right? That's, that's the whole point of temptation. It wouldn't be tempting if you didn't want to do it. But it is so easy for me to give in to temptation. Why isn't it that easy for me to give in to the Spirit? Right? Because the Spirit flips this the exact opposite way. You can do it one of both ways. I can give in to temptation, man's way, or I can give in to the Spirit. And the Spirit will never lead you into temptation. So what James is saying here, right? If we, and look, y'all, this is one of my father-in-law's favorite. In the book of 1 John, it tells us that if we sin, we have an advocate in heaven. 
It does not say, because so many Christians read that, when we sin, we have an advocate in heaven. Not what the word of God says. It says, if we sin, which means God has made a way for you and I to not sin. What is that way? Walk in the Spirit. You see James and Paul coming together perfectly here, right? It's not against each other, it's with each other. Walk in the Spirit. What's James saying here? God cannot lead you into temptation because God can't tempt you. So if I walk in the Spirit, I won't be tempted, tempted. I won't be tempted by the things of the flesh. He can't lead me there. He's a good shepherd, right? Because every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting of shadows. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we could be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. Every good and perfect thing is from God. And when we yield completely to the Holy Spirit, when we give the Holy Spirit complete control, we get every good and perfect thing. That includes the suffering on this earth, right? God's definition of good and perfect is not our definition of good and perfect. God's definition of blessing is not our definition of blessing. Good and perfect means Jeremy looks more like Jesus at the end of the day. Good and perfect means that I am closer to God at the end of the day. You guys remember that John Owen quote that I keep blasting, right? John Owen, one of the Puritan ministers, they always just, they didn't even care, man. You think I'm preaching hard. Those Puritans, they're like gloves off and bloody noses. Let's go. My goal is God himself. At any cost, dear Lord, by any road. That's a really good reflective question for this new year. Can you say that with all honesty? Or are there guardrails you have with God? Where you say, my goal is God himself, but God, I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to go down that road. My goal is God himself, but God, do not tell me to give this up. But God, do not call me to go there. We need to get to a point where there are no boundaries. Where we say, my goal is God himself. And God, whatever it takes for me to get there, I am willing to pay the price hard prayer, isn't it? And that's why it requires submission. It is time to turn in the test, Gospel House. We face the test. God has graciously provided us with the answers to test. He's given us the power to take the test, but it is all completely meaningless if we don't turn it in. Can you imagine, right, walking a college campus? We'll it's our pretend world, so we can be anywhere we want. We're at Harvard. That's where we are. We just finished a test in some really smart program that Harvard has. I'm just trying to think of the smartest program, and I'm blanking, so something smart. And we just finished it, and we know we aced it because we found the professor's answer key, and we got all the right answers. 
And we are so proud of ourselves. We walked out of that classroom, we went home, and we hung that test on our refrigerator. Oh, crap. I forgot to turn it in. Right? You wait till you turn it in to put it on the fridge. But that's what so many of us do. We stop the sermon, right? This sermon stops at point two because we've got the answers. What else do we need, right? Right? Isn't that what every sermon is, is aimed for? Where are your answers? What's your answer? How do you apply this, right? That's what everything is geared toward. But we've got to turn in the test. We've got to be doers of the world. And it's interesting because Jesus, in, in the book of Luke, he actually ends the Sermon on the Mount with this parable. It's Luke 6, uh, 20 through 49, if you're interested in, in reading through the, uh, the Beatitudes that Jesus gives, that's where it is. But then he ends, starting in verse 46, with this parable. He says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Gospel House Church, why do we call him Lord, Lord, and do not do what he says? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and acts on them, I will show you whom he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid a foundation on the rock. And when a flood occurred, the torrent burst against that house and could not shake it because it had been built well. But the one who has heard and has not acted accordingly is like a man who built a house on the ground without any foundation. And the torrent burst against it and immediately it collapsed. And the ruin of that house was great. Sometimes I actually think Jesus' parable here is too good. Because we fall into this trap. Uh, many years ago, my father-in-law got me with this. He always had a way of asking me these questions and like leading me to give him the answer to make me look like a complete idiot. And he got me on this one. But the question is this. In this parable, who is the wise builder? An idiot, Jeremy, immediately says. The one who built his house on the rock. And who is the foolish builder? And the idiot, Jeremy, says. The one who built his rock on the sand right? Come on, y'all. You're idiots too, right? You said it too, or were you smart? But here's the problem. We sing songs about it in kids' church. Not our kids' church, of course, Jackie, but other kids' churches. But we, we sing songs about it. We teach it. We talk about it. It's the wise man built his house upon the rock. Is that how it goes? I don't know. Something like that, right? And the foolish man builds his house on the sand, and the winds came, and the road and the boat came tumbling down. Stuff. But that's what we teach. But who is the wise man? It is he who hears my words and puts them into action. Building the house on the rock is the parable, y'all. That's what he is like. That's not the wise man. How do you build your house on the rock? You hear his words and you do what he says. Who's the foolish man? He's the one who hears God's words, but doesn't act accordingly. You know what's scary, y'all? 
both the wise man and the foolish man hear God's words. They read all the books, they listen to all the podcasts, they both hear the word, but the wise man does it. The wise man acts on the word. He does what it says. The proof is in the pudding, y'all. Have you heard that one? Which in your case is submission and surrender to the Holy Spirit. Do you surrender yourself, your ways, and do what Jesus says? Not just some of the time. All the time. This is how James spins it as we close out this first chapter of the book of James. But Jesus' brother was familiar with Jesus' teachings. And he taught right along with Jesus' teachings. It's always a good thing to teach right along with Jesus' teachings, isn't it? He says, This you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. Now, quick note here. Notice it doesn't say don't become angry. Right? It does not say do not become angry. Because there are things that should make us angry. In fact, I would venture to say one of the reasons we're in such a bind right now is that we aren't angry enough over the sin that exists in our life. Grace has numbed me. Cheap grace has numbed me. To where since Jesus forgives me, it's not that big a deal. But my sin is what put Jesus on the cross. And I can't forget that. We've got to see grace as costly. And it ought to make us angry that we still allow it to hang around. That's the anger of God. God is a jealous God. You guys ever been jealous? Right? When you see a loved one doing something that you know he or she shouldn't be doing. I used to be very jealous over Jana. I kept asking her out on dates and she would, I just kept saying no for an entire year. It was like I knew, like, the best thing for her is to be with me, obviously. Right? But I wanted what was best. That's what jealous love does. Now, it's not jealousy. You know, we can't, that, can't do it man's way, right? We can't do man's jealousy because man's jealousy is flawed. But God's jealousy is perfect. God wants what's best for you. God wants all of you. And it drives him nuts when he sees us giving ourselves away to other things that are worthless. When he sees our, us giving ourselves to these worthless idols. God says, Jeremy, I want all of you. Stop giving that other half to these worthless things. As the God of the universe wants all of you. And he is a jealous God. And he will put you through the ringer until he has all of you. 
And when you get out, you'll tell them thank you. You may not be saying thank you right now because it's hard. But God wants all of you. James then says, But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. If anyone thinks himself to be religion, to be religious, and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself unstained by the world. So you say you believe. Then be a doer of his word, not just a hearer. We have the privilege this year of spending New Year's Day together, which means that this is a new year. We all start over, right? New Year is a great time to clear the slate and start all over again. New Year, new you, right? Church, we have to do better. I have to do better. I am tired of being a double-minded man. I give man's thoughts way too much of my time. I want to be God's man. And in 2023, I am going to be God's man. 100% spirit thoughts. So let's start the new year this way. Giving it all over to God. I'm going to start practicing what I preach. And I'm going to give it to God. And I'd ask you to join me. Let's make 2023 the year that we go all in. We say we believe in God. Good. Then let's do what he says. And let's surrender. Amen? Amen. We're going to take communion together. Tim, you want to pass those out? We, uh, for those of you who joined us online, we kind of took communion together at our Christmas Eve service. Some of you probably used goldfish crackers, but we are, uh, we're going to be official about it today. But the act of communion is an act of remembrance. Where we look back at what Jesus Christ did for us, and we remember. But the act of communion can also be an act of surrender. Because it's not just remembering what Jesus did, but it's remembering why Jesus did it. And for those of us who are in the kingdom of God, it's not just about Jesus' death and resurrection. The gospel doesn't end on Easter. It doesn't end with the empty tomb. The gospel includes the fact that Jesus Christ ascended to the right hand of the Father. That the disciples waited ten days, and then the Holy Spirit fell on all of them. And we now have unlimited access to God himself. We just have to surrender. So today as we take this communion, let it be an act of surrender. 
as you take the bread that represents the body of Jesus Christ, as you drink the cup which represents the blood of Jesus Christ, let it be an act of complete handing over of yourself to God. Jesus Christ gave everything for you. It's time that we give everything back to him. Thank you for listening to the Gospel House podcast. We pray that you are pointed to Jesus and will apply what you learn to look more like him each and every day. If you found today's message impactful, do us a favor and hit the follow button, leave us a rating, and write up a review to help others find our podcast. You can also help us by sharing the podcast so that together we can show the world that the gospel of Jesus Christ is enough. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Head to our website, www.thegospel.house backslash connect. Fill out the form and someone from our Gospel House family will connect with you. God bless you and remember the gospel of Jesus Christ is always enough.